It was over 30 years ago, and I was a gay atheist teenager growing up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I was mad at the world, and yet in my late teens, there was something growing inside of me, a realization that there was something wrong with me, that I wasn't right. I was thinking through questions of justice, goodness, and evil whether human life has inherent value, whether there's any meaning to life if we're just happy accidents. I was realizing that the world before me seemed to have a moral order, a cosmos that, that in a sense had a goodness to it, and that a God who could create and sustain the universe must be tremendously powerful, immense, and utterly terrifying. And as that reality grew within my soul, I needed to find out who this God was. Because I knew he would be the most important thing for my eternity if, in fact, he was real. Even though it would be a few years still before I became a Christian and understood the good news, God was already convicting me of my sin. And he was already preparing me for Jesus. What does it look like as God's people to prepare for Jesus? We're going to look at words from uh, the prophet, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, as we ask what it means to prepare for Jesus. He, that is John the Baptizer, went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice calling out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork 
is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. What does it mean to be preparing for Jesus? You know, one thing it means is, is preparing for Jesus means church folk, religious folk, repenting of sin. Um, that's what was so offensive about John's ministry of baptism. I mean, we don't understand what was going on. But in antiquity, in the first century, there was already a well-established practice of baptism within Judaism. If someone who was a pagan, worshiper of other gods, a Gentile, converted to Judaism, he and all the members of his family would be baptized to make them clean, and then all the males would be circumcised. It was pre-Christian family baptism, covenant baptism. We would recognize it as, well, Presbyterians would recognize it, um, but, uh, and so what, what was John the Baptist saying to all these folks? These are all Jewish people coming to him, and he's saying, y'all need to be baptized. Y'all need to be washed because you are as filthy, dirty, and unbelieving as the pagans who also need to be washed. You functionally Gentiles, outwardly you're circumcised, inwardly you're not. The church needs to be converted. The religious people need to be converted. John was talking to people who were already Jewish, people who were already circumcised. They were already numbered among God's people, and he's saying to them, you too must be converted to walk with God in a repentance. His language is powerful. He calls them children of snakes, brood of vipers. I mean, that's not very gentle terminology, but he was not a very gentle man necessarily. You know, nobody puts John the Baptist on their Christmas cards. Um, the point is that snakes have poisonous venom within them. And he's saying, you, as God's people, you have to be real, have the real understanding that you have poisonous venom inside of you too. John says that these snakes need to flee the coming wrath because in a, a, in a brush fire in the desert, when the, when, the, when the grasses would catch fire, all the snakes would come out of their, their holes and, and flee the fire, flee the coming wrath. And John is asking this provocative question, are you ready to, to, to run from your hole in recognition that destructive fire is drawing near, that a day of judgment is coming? See, these folks have all strayed. They're just like us. These, there wouldn't be normal people who would come to realize that something massive was missing in their life. They've gone about their lives. They've made money. They've built families. They've had relationships, and yet it's not enough. They realize that something's missing. They realize that somehow they have found themselves cut off from God and cut off from God's life inside of them and inside their family. They have sin that they need to repent of. Of course, they were Jews outwardly, but they had played games with God, and they knew it. And they knew that the most important thing was to get right with God. And they realized that, that, they, that it is God himself that they want. And so they're coming to John, knowing themselves dirty. They're presenting themselves to be cleansed and washed as if they were just now becoming God's people at the heart level. 
They knew they're filled with jealousies and resentment, bitterness, critical spirits. They're way too concerned about what people think about them. They have sexual sins and financial sins and verbal sins in the way they've spoken about their spouse or other people around them. They've realized that they haven't weighted God appropriately for who he is. They've realized they need to change. They want to reconnect with God. And, and they know that what's in the way of that is their own sin. They need washing. They need to be baptized. They need to be cleansed, not just symbolically with the waters of John's baptism, but at the heart level. They're just like new converts from paganism. They're coming to one who can make them clean. And some of these people realized they were all Jewish, but some of them specifically were very, very religious Jews. Uh, we know that, that Matthew, in his account of the same thing, points out that, that while John the Baptist was speaking generally to everyone, some of his words were very pointedly directed at the Pharisees, at the religious leaders, um, those who would become Jesus' constant opponent during his ministry. See, even words recorded here in Luke's gospel suggest that some among the crowd knew enough theology to be dangerous. They knew enough about God and about the Bible to, um, to justify themselves. Uh, they're saying, we read, we have Abraham as our father. You know, I don't need to be converted. I don't need to come to God. I don't need to repent of any sins. I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. I am numbered among the elect of Israel. I am outwardly one of God's people. I am circumcised. You can just hear it. I'm baptized. I go to church. I, I'm there every Sunday. It's what religious folks would be tempted to fall back on. I don't need to be converted because my theology tells me I'm already one of God's people. But at the heart level, are we? You brood of vipers, he says, who warned you to flee the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. It was a misuse of their theology, saying that because they were children of Abraham, they were necessarily right with God. When even in the Old Testament, the way to get right with God was by trusting in God's grace as sinners. You know, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis. You, you, can, you, can, you can be more reformed than John Calvin and still not be a Christian. If you use that theology to puff yourself up and make you feel superior to other Christians, to, to feel proud and look down upon them from, from the heights of self-righteousness, well, then you already have your reward. But John the Baptist is warning you of the danger of hell. Theology can be used to draw near to God in humility or to justify ourselves hardening our hearts to God. See, religion doesn't help this situation. Religion makes it worse. You know, the Bible says it's part of the problem. Irreligion is bad, but religion can be toxic because religion can make us smug and self-righteous and self-confident and able to use our theology to justify ourselves, leaving us blind to the fact that our souls may be in ultimate danger, can make us blind to our own lostness as creatures made in God's image yet fallen and shut out from the life of God. That's the warning that John is giving to his theologically-minded hearers. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't begin to say to yourself, I'm a Presbyterian, Reformed, inerritist, complementarian. You can still go to hell because you need Jesus. You need Jesus, and you can only approach Jesus as a sinner 
It's the only class of people Jesus has come to save. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath, he asked. There were people coming to John because they knew that they were sinners and they needed washing. And they were repenting. They were turning to God. But there were others who had shown up that didn't understand that they needed washing. In fact, as religious people, they may have needed it more than anybody because they need to be washed of the sin of misusing God's own words to justify themselves to keep God at a distance. What should we do, the crowd asks. And he talks about justice and mercy. If you've got two sets of clothes, give one to somebody who doesn't have any. If you've got food, give to somebody who doesn't have any food. If you're a soldier, don't take advantage of the authority and power that you have other people. Be content with your pay. Don't extort. Don't accuse falsely. So, and tax collectors, they were, the, they were the, the mafia of the first century in Palestine. It says don't collect any more than you're required to. Don't take advantage of people. John is not calling us all to perform better. What he's calling us to is to come home to God with the empty hands of faith. That's what repentance is. It's turning to God with empty hands saying, Lord, I need you to take my life and make something of it because on my own, I will be fruitless. We read about how John preached a baptism of repentance for the, for, for the forgiveness of of sins. He says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain made low, the crooked roads will become straight, the rough way smooth, and all humanity will see God's salvation. Do you know what happened when a, when a king would travel in his entourage, you know, with his amazing, you know, horse-drawn chariots and whatnot? Um, because I don't know if you've ever thought about um, why in the 19th century they flattened almost the entire island of Manhattan to remove every single hill except for some that survived in, in Central Park was because if you're in a horse-drawn carriage, um, going uphill, even just a slight grade, is, is a lot more work on the horses. And then when you get to the top of the hill and you crest it um, and you start going downhill, you better hope that the horses are faster than the cart behind them, or else they get run over. Uh, and so we hear that part of what it means to prepare for God is, is what it meant in the first century. You would go, and you would flatten out all the hills, and you would build up the valleys, and you would straighten the crooked roads so that the king could come to you in your own life. How are you preparing the way for the Lord's work in you? What valleys is he calling you to fill in? What mountain might he be calling you to make low in your marriage, in your career, in your relationships, in your internet usage, with your money, in how you talk about people, and what you hold in your heart? What valleys to fill in? What mountains made low? to prepare the way to the Lord. You see, repentance is a calling to come home to God. Preparing for Jesus means church folk like us repenting and making sure we're right with God, that we're surrendered to him. Preparing for Jesus also means facing the reality of God's judgment. And this is perhaps not what we would expect. It's perhaps 
even perplexing to us, but John is announcing Jesus as the returning king set to bring final judgment on the earth. He's looking ahead, not just to Christ's first coming, but to his second. Uh, he, he says the axe is already at the root of the trees. That means this tree's going to get cut down if it's not fruitful. And it's going to get thrown in the fire, he says. That's a word of judgment. Of Jesus, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up, separating the wheat to be saved from the chaff to be destroyed. That's the Jesus that John the baptizer is proclaiming. John is pointing us to the second coming of Christ when the Lord himself is here now, already come in the flesh and is on the move. He's pointing us forward to judgment. You say, Greg... How is the declaration of the coming judgment good news? Because it's weird. At the end of this passage, Luke says he continued to preach the good news. And you're looking up and going, where was the good news? I think I'm going to miss that part. But uh, you know, how can we as Christians who have promised in our membership vows that we're sinners right here and right now, how can we say that God's judgment is a good thing? How can a God of love condemn anyone, we ask? It's a question we struggle with, and yet the majority of biblical references to eternal judgment come from the lips of Jesus of Nazareth himself. There's a reason that John the baptizer references his role as, as judge. So, so bear with me as we try to figure out what John the Baptist is trying to say. Um, because for God, judgment is about God's basic goodness in relation to himself. The issue is not that he judges us because he lacks love. Rather, he is himself love. The problem is that we lack love. What kind of eternity will we want if we lack love? How is God's judgment an expression of that love and of justice and of goodness? For the last 20 years, at least once a year, I've told the story of, of the good policeman. It's the only sermon illustration I actually made up and didn't get from somebody else. Um, the, uh, the good policeman, you know, was driving down, you know, Skinker Boulevard um, one afternoon when he saw a, a elderly woman um, trying to cross the street from Forest Park over into the neighborhood, and she had, you know, boxes and bags of, of cookies and baked goods she was going to give to poor children in need. And uh, as she was crossing the street, this big Missouri pickup truck with a you know, Confederate flag in the back runs up and, and cuts her off and screeches to a halt right in front of her. And then out pop three big muscular Missouri boys, Missouri boys. And they take this woman and one of them grabs the cakes, another grabs the cookies, and another one kicks her onto the ground. And then they begin to stomp her and kick her. And even from a distance, you could hear bones cracking. And one whips out a switchblade, and it's over. And from a distance, the good policeman sees what has happened. And he turns on his lights and his siren, and he you know, lays down on the gas pedal, and he goes up and, 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 and puts his cruiser right in front of the pickup as all these Missouri boys are jumping back inside through the windows to try to get away. And he goes up to them, and he thrusts his hand through the open window, and he says, Hi, I'm the good policeman, and I want you to know that I love you. What's wrong with the story of the good policeman? Is it a good policeman? 
Or would a good policeman not be so concerned for the victim that he would make sure that evil is not the last word? A good policeman would see this and be motivated by justice, by judgment, to arrest these men, to, 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 to shackle them and take them in and make sure they have their day in court. A good, it's goodness of God that drives his justice. Because he cannot look upon evil and cruelty. He cannot look upon that street in Bucha just outside of Kiev, Ukraine, and see all those people with their hands tied behind their back and bullet holes in their skull in civilian clothes and say, that's fine. He is just. And it's about his goodness and relationship to himself. What do you say? to the abuse victim? What do you say to the battered spouse? What do you say to nine million victims of the Nazi Holocaust? What do you say to the victims of the Islamic State or the victims of the Orlando nightclub bombing? To, the, to, the, to those throughout history who have been subject to hu humiliation and degradation and cruelty and injustice? Is it any surprise that in the modern world, the disgusting contempt for a God of judgment is only held among the most educated and wealthy nations. It's not held by those who are poor and beaten up. The people on planet Earth today that tend to be embarrassed by the notion of a just and holy God who judges people tend to be in those countries that send their troops to somebody else's country to fight wars on their land, not on their own. But among those who have been stripped of their rights and abused, who have watched their sons and daughters degraded and abused before their eyes, these are people who still believe in a God of judgment because to those people, the notion of judgment is also a notion of justice and salvation. The conviction that evil doesn't get to have the last word. The notion that good will finally triumph over evil. The thought that perpetrators will be held accountable for their crimes against the weak and against the poor and the underprivileged. To the weak and the marginalized of the world, the notion of God being a just and righteous judge is a notion of God being good. A God who sees what's been done to you and will not let it stand forever. Perhaps we Westerners in our in our intellectual arrogance and safety that we've purchased with money, ought to humble ourselves and learn from those who have truly experienced the suffering of this life to the fullest. Perhaps they have much to teach us about God because the background of hope for the oppressed is the confidence that God will rise up and take care of it. That God will either judge the oppressor with his wrath or judge the oppressor with a merciful salvation and conversion that leads to repentance and a changed life. Either way, God gets the last word. Either way, goodness wins. Think about it. Would you want to live in an eternity? Would you want your children spending eternity with unrepentant abusers who, were, who, who will torment them? The Bible says there has to be a separation some of you know what it's like to be hurt. You know what it's like to long for justice. And God is here to say, John the Baptist, in, on behalf of God, is here to say that that justice is coming. Jesus is not indifferent. You know, a parent who watches addiction take over the life of their child 
and they see that there's less and less of their child every day as the addiction lays hold, will absolutely hate that addiction because they love their child. See, I don't believe in a God like that, Greg. Well, perhaps not. But if you look at the sun on a clear day and you stare at it long enough in its blazing glory, even from millions of, millions of miles away, it will literally fry your eyeballs and cause you blindness. Think of the God who, if he's real at all, fuels a trillion stars like that, much larger, billions of light years away, and holds them in the palm of his hand. And what do you think it will be to stare at him with your eyes wide open? Do you think you will be able to survive? God told Moses, no one can look at me and live. One more powerful than I will come, he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Realize who it is that has extended you grace. When you realize that the earthquake on Mount Sinai has become a human being, that the pillar of fire has put on flesh, that fierce and terrifying glory of Almighty God has come to earth in the person of Jesus, you cannot be casual about him because he's the Lord. This is the one John the baptizer is introducing because preparing for Jesus means church folk like us repenting. And it means preparing, uh, preparing for Jesus also means facing the reality of judgment. And yet preparing also means looking to the very one John was preparing us for. He points us to Jesus who will baptize us. And when he does, John says, all mankind will see his salvation John is pointing beyond himself to the one who comes after him. He's pointing to Jesus in whom is salvation, in his person, to know that Jesus is going to return and wipe every tear from your eyes. What difference does it make? Does that promise of Christ remove the evil? Does it remove oppression and cruelty and sorrow and sin from this present world? No, not right now, not in this era, not to the degree that any of us would ultimately want. But to know that Jesus has promised you, saying, I will return, and when I return, I'm going to wipe every tear from your eyes, and all of the evil is going to go away, and there will be universal flourishing and life, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and there will be no more sin or sickness or death or tears. The old order passes away. Everything becomes new to that promise. What does it change? It doesn't actually eliminate evil in this present age, then what good is it, you ask? But the Episcopal priest, Fleming Rutledge, she says this, a group of hostages who know that the SWAT team is on its way is a very different group from one that has no hope of rescue because what Jesus gives us is light and the promise that more light is coming, that he will return and dispel all the darkness. This is what Christian theologians call hope. It's a hope that's not grounded in this present life. It's a hope that no amount of evil in this present age can take away from you if you are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Only in Jesus do we find a meaning that suffering can never take away from you. Only in Jesus do we find a satisfaction that's not based on your circumstances. Only in Jesus do we find an identity that's not fragile and that's not based on circumstances or excluding other people as less than us. Only in Jesus do we find a basis for seeking justice that doesn't make ourselves oppressors. And only in Jesus do we see a way to face the future and to face death itself 
with poise and peace because we know that what we have, death cannot take from us. Because Jesus is on the move. He's coming to make everything right, and when he does, we read all mankind will see God's salvation. That means all kinds of people seeing his salvation. John could look around at this motley rabble that surrounded him, all people coming for baptism, not the wealthy and the famous, the polished and the proud. They might have been in there, but most of these folks were peasants, poor people, people with problems. These were adulterers and swindlers and tax collectors and prostitutes. These were people who had lied to their spouses, who had robbed their employers who had abused people that they were called to love. These are people who had gossiped about their frenemies. These were people with addictions and psychiatric problems and body image issues and sexual sins. These were people publicly identifying themselves as sinners seeking to be made clean by God. And this is what the church looks like. I always love this slide. If I can get that picture, because it's the picture of the church in God's eyes. Because if we were going to collect a group of people, we'd get the wealthy, the proud, the guy who's got it all together, who wears the blue suit and who's in charge. But when God builds his church, he takes the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame those that are strong. You know, that's the church. This motley collection of people with problems, loved by Jesus, watched by Jesus, given eternal life and given a future and a destiny. That's because the heart of God is a heart of goodness that beats for the marginalized, for the bruised, for the broken, and the abused. A heart of God that beats with warmth and love and affection and compassion, whose only great desire is that we would come home to him in what he calls repentance. I'll tell you a story. Thank you. Christina had longed to leave her poor Brazilian village. She wanted to see the world. She was discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor to sleep on, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of life in the big city, and one morning she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart, knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter. Maria hurriedly packed to go to try to find her daughter in the big city. On her way, this was years ago, uh, on the way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing. She took all the money she had, and she sat down in the photo booth and produced as many photos of herself, small photos of herself as she could afford. She sat there, closed the curtain, spent everything she had, and with her purse full of small black and white photographs of herself, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money. She wasn't naive. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And when pride meets hunger, a human will do things before thought unthinkable. And knowing this, Maria began her search. She traveled to bars, to hotels, to nightclubs, to any place with a, reput with a reputation for streetwalkers. She went to them all, and at each place she left her photograph, taped on a bathroom mirror, or tacked to a hotel bulletin board, or fastened to the corner of a phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she hand wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept on the bus as it began her long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that 
The young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and shame and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become her nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet in her little hut in her village. Yet the little village was in too many ways so far away at this point. And as she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture, a photograph of her own mother. Christina's eyes burned, her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo, and written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And so she did. Friends, that is what your Savior Jesus is presenting to you right now. His own image, his own body, his own blood, saying, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please come home. It's God's invitation to us through John, his prophet, an invitation to irreligious people, an invitation to religious people, an invitation to come home to the God who made us and in whom we were designed to live, an invitation to a repentance, to turn back to the eternal and infinite person, this intelligence, this goodness behind the cosmos, to return to him and be reconciled to him because God loves to throw open the doors of his church and bid the bruised, the broken, the guilty, and ashamed to come inside to him and find life. Let's pray.